Hi everyone, welcome to week six of Issues in Social Stratification. This week we are looking at um, gender, we're continuing looking at gender and looking at how it intersects with race and class and why it is important to understand um, differences and sim similarities in experiences or also known as intersectionality. So the lecture for today is split up into two parts. Uh, the first part we're going to look at the theoretical side of this race class gender intersection and in the second part we are going to look at this intersection through the experiences of parenting and mother motherhood um, drawing on articles the articles we read this week so in the first part um, I draw on the work of Paula England Margaret Anderson Patricia Hill Collins Emily Greenman and UZ all right, so the first thing we're gonna look at is this idea of the gender revolution. So the sweeping changes in the gender system since the 1960s have been called a revolution. Women's employment increased dramatically, birth control became wild, widely available, women caught up and surpassed men in rates of college education, undergraduate college majors desegregated substantially, more women than ever, um, started getting doctorates and professional degrees in law, medicine, business, um, and many kinds of gender discrimination in employment and education became illegal. Women entered previously male-dominated occupations, and more women were being elected to political office, or have been elected, elected to political office. So as sweeping as these changes have been, Change in the gender system has been uneven, affecting some groups more than others and some arenas of life more than others. And in fact, recently change has sort of stalled. So for instance, most of the changes in the gender system have involved women moving into positions and activities previously limited to men, with few changes in the opposite direction or change in um, these activity in terms of activities that are deemed valuable. This asymmetry is a reflection of society's valuation and reward system that has not changed much. That is the tendency to devalue and badly reward activities and jobs traditionally done by women. Because of the cultural and institutional devaluation of characteristics and activities associated with women, men have had little incentive to move into badly rewarded traditionally female activities such as homemaking or female-dominated do female occupations. By contrast, women had powerful economic incentives to move into the tr traditionally male domains of paid employment and male typical occupations. One example of this devaluation of traditionally female activities is the failure to treat child-rearing as a public good and support those who do it with state payments. Further, there has been limited change in heterosexual personal worlds. For instance, the world of dating and marriage, double standards surrounding areas of sex and aging, and women taking their husband's last names or not passing their name to their children. The limited change seen in the heterosexual personal realm may be because women's incentives to change these things is less clear than their incentive to move into paid work and into higher paying male jobs. 
the, the incentives that do exist, for example, are largely non-economical. That is, women may find it meaningful to keep their birth slash given uh, surnames and give them to their children, and they probably enjoy sexual freedom. But these non-economic benefits may be neutralized by the non-economic penalties from transgressing gender roles and by the fact that some have internal and some women have internalized the norms. So now we're going to look at why, more specifically, why uh, race, class, and gender matter for understanding um, kind of this gender, this idea of the gender revolution. So race, class, and gender matter because they continue to structure society in ways that value some lives over others. Currently, some groups have more opportunities and resources while others struggle. Further, race, class, and gender matter because they've remained the foundations for systems of power and inequality that, despite our nation's diversity, continue to be among the most significant social facts of people's lives. Thus, despite having removed the formal barriers to opportunity through um, laws and the passing of diff various discrimination acts, the United States and Canada are still highly stratified along lines of race, class, and gender. So in this section, I'm going to explore, kind of just look at how race, class, and gender operate together in people's lives. Fundamentally, race, class, and gender are intersecting categories of experience that affect all aspects of human life. Thus, they simultaneously structure the experiences of all people in this society, whether you recognize it or not. At any moment, race, class, or gender may feel more salient or meaningful in a given person's life, but they are all overlapping and cumulative, cumulative cumulative in their effects. Social structures should be emphasized in any efforts to conceptualize intersections of race, class, and gender. This approach includes a matrix, what, what can be called a matrix of domination that can be used to analyze race, class, and gender. A matrix of domination sees social structures as having multiple interacting levels of domination that stem from this, the societal configuration of race, class, and gender relations. This structural pattern affects individual consciousness, group interaction, and group access to institutional power and privileges. Within this structural framework, it is less about comparing race, class, and gender as separate systems of power than about investigating the structural patterns that join them, so why they together are significant. Because of the simultaneity of race, class, and gender in people's lives, interactions these interactions can be seen in individual stories and in personal experiences. So it is important to recognize the significance of individual narratives of race, class, and gender. That's We've looked at that in previous weeks. Yet the social structure that provide the context for these individual experiences should be emphasized. In particular, studying how they intersect within a context of social structures help us understand how race, class, and gender are manifested differently depending on how they interact with each other. So, for example, uh, black men might be privileged as men, but this may not. But this may not be true when their race and class are taken into account. 
Otherwise, how could we explain the particular disadvantage black men experience in the criminal justice system, in education, and in the labor market? So studying the connections among race, class, and gender reveal that divisions by race and by class and by gender are not as clear cut as they may seem. White women, for example, may be disadvantaged because of gender, but privileged by race and perhaps, but not necessarily, by class. And increasingly, class differentiation within racial and ethnic groups reminds us that race is not a monolithic category, as can be seen in the fact that white poverty is increasing more than poverty among other groups, as we saw in previous weeks. And this is happening even while some whites hold the most power in society. The matrix of domination approach to race, class, and gender studies is historically grounded, and these institutional impacts, or institutional systems rather, have a special impact in the United States as well as in Canada. Yet race, class, and gender intersect also with other categories of experiences, such as sexu sexuality, ethnicity, age, ability, religion, geography, nationality, citizenship, and many other categories of experiences. Historically, these intersections have taken varying forms from one society to the next. Within any given society, the, that connections among them also shift. So the ways, for instance, age and religion um, intersect and shape experience can shift within any given society. What this means is that race is not inherently more important than gender or vice versa, just as sexuality or ability is not, more, is not inherently more significant than class or ethnicity. Because of this complex and changing relationship among these various categories of analysis, any analysis should be grounded in the historical in institutional context of the United States and Canada. Doing so means that race, class, and gender emerge as fundamental categories of analysis, so significant that in many ways they have been described as influencing all other um, categories. Systems of race, class, and gender have been so consistently and deeply codified in U.S. laws that they have had intergenerational effects on economic, political, and social institutions, which we have seen um, these intergenerational and historical effects um, we have seen in previous weeks. For example, the class, the capitalist class relations that have characterized all phases of U.S. history have routinely privileged or penalized groups organized by gender, race, and class. As well, U.S. and Canadian social institutions have reproduced economic equality, um, economic inequality for poor people, women, and people of color from one generation to the next. Thus, in the United States and in Canada, race, class, and gender demonstrate visible, long-standing material effects that in many ways foreshadow more recently visible categories of ethnicity, religion, age, sexuality, and other social categories that intersect um, with race, class, and gender. All right, so for the remainder of this part of the lecture, I'm gonna look at two concepts, um, double jeopardy and intersectionality, that have been used to measure and explain the role of race, class, and gender 
um, within Canadian and uh, US social stratification systems. In particular, I'm going to look at um, the limitations of this double jeopardy concept and the increased value of intersectional approaches. Okay, so a substantial body of literature argues for intersectionality or the recognition that group identities such as race and gender cannot be understood in isolation for, from one another. Intersectional perspectives argue that the meaning of gender differs across racial groups and the meaning of race differs for men and women. This approach has made valuable contributions towards understanding the lives of minority women in particular, who, who do not necessarily experience race in the same way as minority men, or experience gender in the same way as white women. Yet, as we've seen from previous weeks, studies often neglect this idea of intersectionality, um, particu particularly within the context of earnings inequality. Rather, research often focuses on either racial inequality among men or gender inequality among whites. Ultimately, unless research is specifically focusing on a specific group, um, for instance, research that, looking, that is looking at um, Asian American earning inequality, um, unless so, unless research is specifically looking at a focus group, minority women and their experiences are often overlooked within broad topics like gender inequality. Further, work that has addressed the earnings of minority women outside of feminist intersectionality work has regularly failed to consider race and gender jointly as intersecting contact concepts. Instead, research often or explanations often focus on one-dimensional approaches like comparing minority women either to minority men of the same group, which has been called a, the gender-centered approach or comparing minority women to white women workers, which is called or can be framed as a race-slash-ethnicity-centered race approach. The limitation of these one-dimensional approaches is that they rely on an assumption of additivity, not intersectionality. So this idea of adding gender plus race has been come to be known as um, double jeopardy, the concept double jeopardy. Double jeopardy or the assumption of additivity stems from the idea that gender and race, for example, can be added together or stock, stacked on top of one, one another to shape and explain experiences. So for instance, the idea would be that minority women incur two earning disadvantages additively, one associated with being a woman and another associated with being non-white. This additive assumption or double jeopardy um, gained popularity throughout the uh, late 70s, 80s, and 90s, although, although few researchers today explicitly put forth this assumption. This idea of double jeopardy is invoked implicitly whenever researchers draw inferences about the race gap or the gender gap um, from studies of focusing on one or the other. What, like, um, for example, the research we looked at last week when we were looking at um, the gender wage gap without actually looking at um, intersectionality. 
Critics of the additivity assumption have maintained its problematic nature for understanding and explaining women's experiences. They have critics have maintained that double jeopardy, this idea of double jeopardy, um, or one-dimensional approaches, ignore the ways in which minority women's experiences are unique, comparable neither to those of white women, nor nor to those of men of the same race or ethnicity. Research focused on the earnings of women of color have illustrated the limitations of an additive approach. While minority women of most, eth of most ethnicities are clearly disadvantaged, their earnings are often still higher than one might predict based on their race plus gender alone, or within an additivity, what's been framed as an additivity framework. For instance, many studies have shown that the earnings of black women are higher relative to those of white women than the earnings of black men relative to those of white men. Yet, research on, so despite this um, complexity, research on race and gender earnings gaps have not attempted to address the additivity assumption directly. That is, even when empirical results show clear deviations from the double jeopardy characterization, like the previous example I just mentioned, researchers of this camp have paid little attention to the underlying reasons for, and have even sometimes failed to comment on, the, the apparent interactions between race and gender. So they failed to comment on what happens within these intersections, so that unique space of intersection. To overcome these limitations, two alternative practices emerged within the literature during the uh, 1980s and 90s. The first was to compare all gender-race combinations simultaneously to one re reference group, usually white men. This approach is um, fairly common within uh, statistical research where um, the experiences that you're trying to examine or understand are uh, compared to a reference group. This approach is inherently limited because it supports an image of white men and their experiences as the norm, standard, or ideal to which all other uh, to which all others and all others experiences are measured in relation to. In effect, it does little to actually challenge um, white men's experiences. The second approach uh, is intersectionality. The second approach is um, intersectionality. Both approaches, both of these approaches have advantage over the gender-centered approach or the race-ethnicity-centered race approach in that they avoid the assumption of added additivity, which assumes that minority women incur two earning disadvantages additively, one associated with being a woman and another associated with being not white. However, the second approach, intersectionality, gained more traction, uh, particularly among feminist researchers. Intersectionality recognizes that the disadvantage faced by minority women is not simply the sum of gen the gender penalty and the race penalty. It isn't a matter of stacking race and gender on top of each other to produce a singular result or experience. Rather, experiences take place within the unique intersections of social locations that include gender, race, and class, but also extend um, beyond these three to include a myriad of things and experiences, like I've mentioned before.
Intersectionality is not the same as diversity. What this means is that it is not, that it is not concerned with diversity or multiculturalism, but with power relations, and specifically the ways in which differences embed domination and oppression. White, male, heterosexual, and citizenship privileges are not personal, but are institutional arrangements that provide non-disabled persons classified as white, male, and heterosexual greater access to power and resources that are not similarly available to people of color, women, LGBTQ individuals, or non-citizens. Intersectional scholarship can be traced to early inquiries and concern over social inequalities um, arising from social activism. As activists attempted to explain the different material conditions or economic circumstances within specific groups, like women, fellow activists felt marginalized because their experiences were not included. So, for instance, black women have long critiqued feminism as a white, um, as a white movement that hasn't considered the, li the lived experiences of black women and women of color. These marginalized activists challenged others to capture their circumstances, which led to intersectional theorizings about inequality. Ultimately, one-dimensional conceptualizations of individuals or groups do not capture the complexity of lived experiences. Social hierarchies are not one-dimensional, and power relations in families, communities, and nations cannot be explained without examining how and why certain social identities are subordinated to others and interact with each, others, with each other in different ways. Therefore, key to understanding lived experiences is this idea of inter intersecting social identities. All right, so in the next part, podcast, I'm going to explore um, how intersections of race, class, and gender can be identified within um, women's experiences of motherhood and parenting. <laughs>